Hello, and welcome to Returning to Us, a podcast that gives you strategies and tips for how to hack your brain, build and strengthen relationships, and to teach people how to recognize and neutralize their emotional states. I'll discuss emotional intelligence and regulation, how food and exercise impact the body and brain, and share lessons from my own lived experiences. I'm Lauren Spiegelmeyer, the founder of The Behavior Hub, which is an organization that works to reduce the stressors of raising and educating children through a brain and biology-based lens. In these episodes, I'll share stories and strategies from my own life, work, and research, answer listener questions, and wrap it up with a try-it-at-home tip. Decades worth of information in just minutes. You ready? you all have been with me for the last couple of episodes. We have been working through, I would call them parenting texts, parenting resources, but really they are education, child rearing, child raising. They kind of fall into all categories of, of things, children, but they are a series of books that I've read through about or on the topic of either kind of international or non-Western parenting or and or ancient parenting. Some of the books I'm using and referencing here are Bringing Up Bebe, which is an account of an American in France. There's Young Parent, an American in German. There is the Danish Way, I believe it's called. There's Hunt Gather Parent, which is based on ancient parenting cultures. And another one is There Is No Bad Weather, which is a Scandinavian's account here in the Midwest. So I pulled some things I thought were really relevant and applied to some areas of struggle that we experience here as parents and as educators. So we've talked about cooperation, we've talked about behavior, emotions, punishments, consequences, resilience. And I want to go into kind of resilience, but also more self-esteem today. So if you want to learn more about emotions, behavior, cooperation, getting kids to listen, go back and listen to the last couple, last couple episodes. And if you want to learn more about how to build children's self-esteem and their resilience, and kind of reduce a lot of the anxiety kids are experiencing, this is a great episode for you. So let's jump right in. When I think about kids today and why kids today are more anxious and maybe even less resilient or have lower self-esteem or self-confidence, it's really because the style of parenting that we've adopted in the last couple of years, maybe even decade, decades, where we've gone from like strict authoritarian to giving kids a little bit more control but we are controlling them in different ways and we are kind of overprotecting them. And that likely comes from our own place of intrusive thoughts, anxiety, distrust, and ultimately this is where it leads us. When we raise children with this kind of authoritarian approach and command-based approach. I'm your parent. You must listen. I'm the adult. You must respect me. One, it doesn't show them respect first and respect begets respect. And this really negatively impacts their self-esteem, their resilience, their self-knowledge, their self-confidence, self-worth. 
because we are constantly telling them what to do. We're not really allowing them to think for themselves, problem solve, fix issues, experience and work through scary things or hard or tough things. So there are a few things I want to share with you around this. One, in the book Hunt Gather Parent, Micheline, the author, talks about limiting yourself to three commands, three kind of maybe even redirections or um, requests per hour. Y'all, that may not sound very hard to you, but if you got your phone out and you recorded yourself, like if you brought up a voice memo or um, not even a voice memo, an audio recording, and you can download Zaps for free. I use them a lot. You could turn it on for just five or 10 minutes and go about your business around your child and then listen to that back later that day. I guarantee you, you are giving more than three commands in one hour. (laughs) My guess is that you probably give three commands in the matter of five minutes, more than three commands. So listen to that back, try this practice. And then really try and limit yourself to three commands. So one way to do this might be like grab three sticky notes. And the moment you give a command, you put a a sticky note up somewhere on the wall, on the counter. And when you hit those three commands and you put those three sticky notes up, notes up for the next however many minutes until you reach that hour, you cannot make any commands. And it is hard. But when we stop talking so much and we just let kids be, they learn to occupy themselves and they learn to figure things out on their own. And that's a beautiful thing because it breeds independence and self-assurance. The other thing I would say is if you're really struggling with this, something that you can do is not giving a verbal command, but giving more of a nonverbal command. It's less stimulating. It's less direct and it works really well. And actually for me, it works better than verbal commands. My facial expressions say a lot and my child even at seven months, eight months, reads them well, and he's very facially expressive. So I do this versus taking action with like a physical command or a verbal command, and it works very, very well. So try nonverbals. Something else I see a lot, and I will have to address with myself in the, the near future when my child begins to talk is at school, at home, I see so many people answer for kids teachers, parents, uh, telling people what their kids like. And, and this is in front of them. So let me clarify. When your child's not around, yeah, it makes sense to answer for them. But when your child's right there and you think they're too young to answer, too, too young to have input, they're not. They can be asked the question. They can be asked for input. They can be, they can answer for themselves when someone has a question. So if someone asks the question to you about your child, but it really it's a question the child can answer, redirect the question back to the child. And this speaking for themselves and saying what they want, because what they want can change. So we may be speaking for them and saying something they used to want and no longer do gives them a chance to feel confident in themselves and own their, their decisions, their choices, their uh, values and and to kind of go off of values a little bit here. Sometimes I think we answer for our kids because we want them to be a certain way or care about certain things. And, and I I experience this very truly and very real in a very real sense right now, where I'm a person who cares about the type of food I eat probably more than anything else in my life over fitness, health, 
anything else. I care about where my food comes from. Was it humanely grown or harvested? Was it grown and harvested in such a way that's helpful and, and going to preserve the earth? Is it kind of clean food and clean could be organic, but really beyond even organic. And that's important to me because I know enough about the American food industry to know that I definitely don't trust it. And we mass produce food and we use a lot of artificial things to be able to mass produce food. Now that is a whole separate conversation for another day, but that is probably one of my strongest core values. I value that a lot. That said, naturally, I am using that and implementing that in my home as a value. And my child is beginning to learn that and being exposed to those types of things. And I remember I had a family member say something about, you know, that's something you value Lauren, but your child may not care about that. And he may grow up to be quite the opposite. And that's true. And I agree. And I hope I create the space for him to explore on his own because I certainly don't want him to just adopt my value, but it is my responsibility as a parent to teach that value because that to me plays into like safety and wellness and well-being. And it's my job to educate him about what's going on in the world to help him make an informed decision. And then once he's old enough to make a decision that is educated and informed, I will support what I hope I will support whatever decision he makes. But when my values are clear, it makes it easier for me to make a decision and it helps a child determine their own thoughts desires, cares, values. So making sure that my core values are strong and that my family's core values are strong and clear, clear as kind. Okay. So how do we kind of let kids speak for themselves? How do we breed kind of more mature, self-assured kids? Here's some examples of things I've seen, read about, heard about where I'm like, Hmm, a child of insert whatever age could do this. One is get their own taxi, lift, Uber, train, whatever it is. Teaching kids to have the independence to do this. I know I have a friend who has a 16-year-old who's not yet driving and she will just constantly order him Ubers. I mean, at 16, my feeling is if he's going to become self-confident, self-assured, he needs to be taught how to order his own Uber, be set up with the app. I might be paying for it, but I want him to be able to do that himself. And especially at that age. Another thing that kids can do, especially young kids, they can order their own food. We don't always need to speak for them. She'll have, he'll have, you know, whatever insert off the menu, let them speak for themselves. Let them speak up, let them you know, be proud and own their choice. Uh, let them organize activities, whether that's in your own house when, when friends are over or organize activities to go over to friends' houses or organize sleepovers, let them call or ask or be a part of that communication. You don't always need to be setting that up for them. A big one, especially in education is let kids settle their own disputes. Sometimes we jump in too early where we can let it go and see where it goes and kind of just observe. Sometimes we need to jump in because it might be getting kind of aggressive or violent, but if they don't have the skill set to settle those disputes, teach them the skill set because by teaching them and investing a little bit of time up front and then being able to settle the disputes on their own later, that saves us so much more time. And a big one I experienced as a coach, as a student athlete is let kids talk 
to their teachers, to their coaches. And if there's an issue or something going on, don't be that parent that goes and fights for your child. Be the parent who is behind their child enough to teach their child to stand up for themselves. So I think it's, there's a really valuable skill set in being able to kind of talk with your child about how to approach a teacher, how to approach a coach, giving them the language and the script to do so and, and kind of pushing them to do it. That's what creates self-esteem. That's what creates someone who is going to be able to do that later in life as an adult. I mean, you're not going to be able to go to your child's boss and talk to them for them. It's a skill they need to develop to start at a young age. The other thing that I would highly encourage you to consider when building self-esteem in your kiddo is letting them do either the hard or the dangerous or maybe even the somewhat unsafe thing. There is some work done by a woman named Ellen Sandsetter, and she kind of published the uh, book, I believe, but there are these kind of like danger zones, or she calls them the categories of risky play. There are six of them, but the, and I'll share them with you in just a second. The biggest thing is just don't shield your child from danger because it causes more stress and anxiety. Teach them how to respond to it because you can't always protect them from it. There are going to be moments in their lives when they're not around or when they're older adults and they need this skill set. So what are some things that Ellen Sandsetter recommends you expose your child to? Great heights. And I remember this as a child being able to climb up trees, jumping, hanging, balancing, swinging. And I remember there's a picture of me. I'm like three and a half, maybe four. I'm like way up in the top of this tree. My family wasn't watching. I climbed way up and I don't remember if anyone freaked out, but I don't think they did because I don't have anxiety about doing that as an adult, or I don't remember that moment being like an anxious moment. Instead, they let me get back down and they watched me do so. And that created a lot of self-esteem. I had the self-confidence to do that and do it safely and successfully. And it's unlikely that (laughs) your child's going to fall and get severely injured. Um, We are biological beings who had to do that way, way, way long time ago to kind of make ourselves safe. We had to climb things. So we we do have that innate skill. So there is a chance of risk of injury from falling, uh, but it's unlikely. And uh, maybe considering, is it worth that risk because of what the student will gain? Nothing else is going to be a tree. It can be something like monkey bars and just supporting and scaffolding out the um ability to do that. So helping your child get more comfortable with that. Okay. Let's keep going. Rapid speeds. So running really, really fast or sliding down a slide or swinging kind of really, really fast or sledding or bicycling, even like roller skating, ice skating, or like those spinners or spinny things. Again, kids can get injured. And if we teach them how to do this the right way and well and safely, they will actually gain a lot of confidence dangerous tools. So this could be things like knives, which we really shield kids from the US. I highly encourage introducing knives early so that we know how to use them the right way and the safe way. And it's unlikely that kids will get injured. Actually, there's a lot of research behind kids not getting injured because they know how to use these things the right way. And you can scaffold it out. It doesn't need to be the sharpest knife in the house. It can be a more dull knife and you can work your way up to sharper knives. Other uh, forms of dangerous tools, uh, power tools, potentially, 
rope can be maybe dangerous, teaching them how to tie knots and rope, dangerous machines like saws or even handsaw, like a manual handsaw, axes, uh, other tools that are maybe not power tools, but could be dangerous, showing them how to use these the right way. Dangerous elements. So that could be fire. That could be like cold water or deep water or rapidly moving water. Rough and tumble play. So that could be the kind of big body, maybe like fighting, but appropriate level of fighting and wrestling, chasing, sword fighting, and obviously not with real swords, but like with sticks or foam swords or pool noodles, but letting them kind of smack each other around a little bit. Again, that's biologically wired into our system. It was a form of play that we used eons ago because we had to, that's all. We didn't have toys back in that hunter-gatherer time period. And the last one, disappearing or getting lost. So the opportunity to play and explore in these kind of unfamiliar places, either alone or in small groups. So this doesn't mean go drop your child off somewhere and let them by themselves, but can you um, put them in a situation where you're not right beside them and you put some distance between yourself and them? I remember in the book, Bring a Baby, it talks about this and it talks about how Americans in France are like right at the playground, right next to their kid, making sure they don't fall, making sure they're safe and how the French kind of sit back on the benches and read a book or kind of let their kid do their own thing, let them occupy themselves, let them fix their own problems, let them kind of keep themselves safe. And it's interesting to think about because I I do, I haven't spent much time in France, but I've seen kids in the US and I've seen parents do that exact thing where they are right up next to their kiddo and they are uh, making sure that they don't fall and making sure that they are occupied and that they don't have a moment of downtime to themselves. So Maybe this kind of dangerous zone is like stepping back on the playground, being at the playground, but stepping back. And that kind of blends into what the author Micheline talks about in Hungavik Parent is the autonomy zones. So these are kind of zones where kids can go and have some freedom. They just need to be taught about them. So together you need to identify what are the dangers of this zone then you start to step back and you keep stepping back and then you form what she calls an invisible safety net, meaning like you're close enough that you can respond, but you don't just rush in. And when you do come in, you are not hastily sprinting over unless they are in serious danger, but you are calmly walking over and you're going to train them about these identified dangers and how to respond by giving them information about how to respond. So what are some examples of autonomy zones? You could make like a schoolyard playground one. You could do like a community garden. You could do the beach. You could do grassy fields, open fields, wide open areas, maybe a dog park. It kind of depends on types of dogs in there. It's a little bit harder because there are some aggressive dogs and dogs like to run around and kids can get knocked over. So maybe not the best, but it is a bigger open area. Uh, So think of any autonomy zones could be kind of bigger open areas where you can kind of see the child from afar. For older kids, you could expand it beyond like just a big open area and you could even do like your whole neighborhood or if you're in an apartment complex, like the whole building or the like playground area around the building. Granted, it is safe enough. There are certainly areas in the U.S. that aren't safe to do that, but we want to 
kind of introduce them to that wider autonomy zone by showing them the restrictions and the bounds by hosting our neighbors so we can get to know them so they can watch out for us and our kids when we're not right there with them. And we can encourage them to get groups together and and involve other peers. So kind of a recap here, build resilience by reducing your commands, using more nonverbals, not answering for your kids, making sure your family and core values are defined and clear and letting kids order for themselves, speak for themselves, do the dangerous things by creating autonomy zones. And I can say one other example that's coming to mind from my own life. We have an eight month old starting to crawl, just about ready to walk, has a walker that he likes to move around in. And as we watch and see him get into stuff, like ripping leaves off my giant, beautiful plants and pulling clay bowls off of lower hanging shelves, my desire is not to just remove all those dangerous things or things that can get broken or things that can be torn like my plants that I love so dearly, (laughs) but instead to teach him kind of the dangers or the safety or the expectations around that. And he's young. He's only seven, seven and a half, eight months, but by my nonverbal language and even my like harsh no, or um, my redirection to a more appropriate activity, I can begin to teach him to not touch this, but do touch this, to not pull that, but do pull this. And by doing so, I don't have to remove every single thing and safeguard my whole house. I can teach him what is appropriate and not appropriate to play with even as early as seven and eight months old. So give it a shot. Try one of those things, see how it feels. It's going to be uncomfortable at first because it's not our norm, but it does have a lot of perks and benefits by mm, making kids more self-assured, self, their self-esteem is higher and just gives us more freedom too. That takes us to today's listener question, which is kids are really stressed out and tired and they are having trouble regulating their emotions. What do we do? My first response is when kids are having trouble regulating their emotions, it means that their emotional brain area is bigger and stronger, more muscular, if you will, than the thinking brain. So my first thought is let's start exercising and using the thinking brain more. So I would use or integrate more what I would call like prefrontal cortex executive functioning activities. And that grows the thinking brain. So think of any game or activity that requires a child to think before they act. It slows them down. Any slow moving activity, so meditation, mindfulness activities, uh, logical games, organizing games, uh, sorting games, matching games, Things like Jenga, Twister, Kerplunk, Don't Break the Ice, they all require you to think before acting. I might also try and help them begin to identify what stress and anxiety feels like in my body. Is my chest tight? Does my throat restrict? Does my shoulder area get more tense and tight? Does my stomach hurt? What what are the signs, physical signs, physiological signs in my body? And when I feel those things, what can I do after I name it, name the feeling, that tames it. What can I do to flip the energy? How can I get back to equilibrium? And that's probably one of those mindfulness prefrontal cortex activities. 
The other thing I would highly encourage is just counterbalance. If there's a lot of stress and exhaustion, what can we do? We can slow down. We can get outside more. We can get into nature. We can do more mindful activities and less tech screen um, commitments to things after school, slow kids down. To wrap up the show, I'm going to give you our try it at home tip, which is consider natural light versus darkness and how that impacts your ability to get into a rested state or kids to get into a rested state or more alert state. Natural light, bright natural light, not artificial, not those big fluorescent bulbs, but natural sunlight through a window releases serotonin. It calms us, but it also makes us more alert versus a shaded darker area is going to re- release melatonin, which is going to make us more low energy, subdued, even possibly more groggy and entering into that tired state. So if you want kids energy to come back down, use more darkness, more shaded area, turn off the lights, close the blinds. If you want kids to be more alert, open the windows, let in the light, put them in a place in the room that has more light. Same for yourself as an adult. All right, that's it for today's episode of Returning to Us Podcast. Remember our try at home tip using real natural light and darkness to your advantage. And if you are looking for more support in the area or areas of stress, trauma, behavior, or the brain, I would love to be a part of that learning journey. The Behavior Hub offers a range of supports from coaching groups to online trainings to even online courses with university credit. So if you want to learn more, just shoot me a message on the Behavior Hub's website or text me at 717-693-7744. And don't remember to lock in what you learned by either trying it right away or commenting below how it went or what you're going to try or where you're stuck. And we'll tackle it together. Until next episode, I am Lauren Spiegelmeyer and thanks for joining me. Thank you.